All right. If I can go ahead and ask everyone to make their way back to their seats. Let me just say that I am actually really thankful uh, for those of you who are here this morning. This is obviously a spring forward morning. I don't know how many of you guys are feeling a little bit of that spring forward tiredness, but it feels like somebody uh, sort of held my eyes open with toothpicks and then took a blow dryer and blew dry each eyeball. So I literally am kind of feeling it. Anyway, and uh, whatever. So chances are probably you guys are too. Um, Again, I'm just thankful that you're here. And uh, as I always pray, um, it's really my prayer that that you would have an encounter, a life-changing encounter with God this morning, that you would um, be introduced to him in a new way. Um, And so that is my prayer, that no one would be able to leave this place without having had an encounter with God. So everybody... Um, or at least most of you know that Easter is on the way. You know, maybe not everybody knows the exact date that, you know, of Easter, but most of you kind of understand that springtime uh, entails this, uh, this celebration of Easter, Easter eggs, Easter bunnies, all that good stuff. And, and obviously, um, some of you understand that the deeper message of, of Easter is, is actually the fact that we uh, serve and worship and have a relationship with a risen Christ, very, very different um, Easter celebration there. So we're in this uh, series called Road to the Resurrection, where we're going to end with the resurrection of Jesus, but we're chronologically going through the book of John as we approach the resurrection. And so we began at the beginning um, of John 19, and Bob talked about and preached this narrative of Scripture. And in the narrative of Scripture that, that Bob preached on, he really preached on Jesus being led to the cross, right, and then being placed on the cross. And then last week, we took a look at a section of Scripture that entailed Jesus' last words, where the last thing that he uttered in John chapter 19 from the cross is, it is finished, right? The Greek word was tetelestai, and what that meant is paid in full, right? And part of what that means for you and I is that you don't owe anything else, right? Everything required for you to be good with God has been paid through Jesus. And that's why the gospel isn't good advice, The gospel is always good news. The good news is, as you get up to pay your bill from the restaurant, your waitress comes up and goes, hey, this person paid it for you. You don't owe anything else. And that's the freedom that the gospel offers us. Today, we're going to be looking at a section of John where we see that Jesus uh, is taken down from the cross. And in particular, he's taken down from the cross by two very powerful and prominent men um, who are members of the Jewish Sanhedrin or Supreme Court. We're going to get there in just a minute. For time being, let me just ask that you would uh, either turn in your Bibles to John chapter 19, verses 31 through 42, John 19, verses 31 through 42, or if you'd rather, you can simply follow along on the screen as I read through these verses. Now, it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath, Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies to be left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. We'll get to that legs broken part in just a second. Uh, One of the things we see in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 21, um, there's actually a clear prohibition in Jewish law saying that a body that is placed upon a pole, or in this case a cross, isn't allowed to stay on that pole overnight. Now this is in contrast to what the Romans usually did, which is they put a body up there they let people die of asphyxiation or blood loss or, you know, being exposed to the elements or oftentimes um, being uh, injured by animals. And they let those bodies stay up there and putrefy and rot. Again, the point of crucifixion 
was they, they did these crucifixions right along this main passageway into Jerusalem as a sign that anybody who messes with the Roman government is going to get this. And so it was a little bit of a warning. Verse 32, the soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who'd been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other, right? So we read this, and, uh, and you probably are wondering why in the world you break the legs of these people. The way they would have done it is they would have had this like iron club, iron bar, and the Roman soldiers would have taken this heavy iron bar and they would have broken the thigh bones of these people on the crosses. The reason they did that is because ultimately, usually you died of asphyxiation. In other words, you couldn't breathe. And so these people on the crosses would have to use their, their quad muscles to stand up in order to breathe and they would relax. And when you broke that thigh bone, it made it impossible for the people to stand up in order to breathe. And so that was the purpose for the breaking of these legs. Verse 33, but when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, right? So this is a surprise to the soldiers because Jesus had only been up there about six hours and usually people lasted longer than that. But we read in John 19.30 that it says that Jesus gave up his spirit. So he said it's finished, and then he gave up his spirit. In other words, Jesus was in control uh, the entire time of his life and his death. He gave up his spirit. But they were surprised that he was dead. And so verse 34, it says, Instead of breaking the thigh bones of Jesus, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and testifies so that you may believe. That's almost undoubtedly a reference to John, the author of this book. Verse 36, these things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones would be broken, right? This refers to a passage of scripture, Psalm 34, 20, where we read about this Messiah, that not, not one of his bones will be broken. Verse 37, and as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. This is in reference to Zechariah verse uh, 10 of chapter 12, right? And so Jesus is fulfilling these prophecies, and John is putting them in there for a very particular reason. Verse 38, later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in that garden was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid, because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby... They laid Jesus there. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again um, that you've invited us into this place this morning. And, uh, and you've invited us holistically um, with uh, our doubts, with our fears, uh, with our anxieties, uh, with our anger, with our feelings of betrayal, really even with our questions of whether or not you're a, a good God. Um, and so, Father, I pray that as we bring our whole self to you this morning, that we would not um, suppress all of those concerns and fears and doubts, but rather that we would bring them to you and that we would lay them before you and let you deal with them, let you handle them. Father, I pray, um, again, uh, that you wouldn't let anyone leave here this morning without having had an encounter with you um, through the power of your Spirit. Father, I pray that 
even this morning, uh, that your name would be glorified and, uh, and that, that the name of your son Jesus would be lifted up um, as our only hero. Father, we pray these things now in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So let me ask you a question really quickly. The question's there, very simple. Uh, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? Um, just let that sink in for a minute. And for some of you, that might take a little bit longer to think about what you're afraid of. Others of you are like, oh, no, cockroaches. Like, I definitely am afraid of cockroaches, you know. Or maybe it's snakes, or maybe it's spiders, or maybe it's, you know, public speaking, or maybe it's being embarrassed in public, or, you know, the list goes on and on and on. But we are a culture, we are a people, frankly, we're human, and human beings are scared to death. In fact, I'm going to argue that our fear is maybe our default position, right? It may go all the way back to Genesis 3, where, uh, where Adam and Eve were afraid, and so they, they, they sort of covered themselves from one another. And so we're fearful of what our fellow men think. But not only that, but we're, we're really fearful of what God thinks as well, and so we hide from him, just like Adam and Eve did. I would say our default position as human beings is that we're scared to death. And we arrange our lives in way after way after way in order to protect ourselves from those things that we're afraid of, right? You can just, just Google fear, and there's about a million websites that come up. Um, that's what I did over the course of the last week, is I Googled fear, and I ran across an incredibly um, valuable and scientific website called Listverse. It's one of those places where you go, and they list all these ridiculous things. It's not very scientific at all, actually. And, uh, but I found it, and I thought their list of fears was kind of interesting, and so I'm going to read their list of top 10 fears. And here's their list of fears. One, the first thing they talked about was fear of losing our freedom, right? Fear of losing our freedom. Just think about for a second how many of you can identify with that automatically, whether it's being enslaved or addicted or maybe in a relationship in which case you lose your freedom. But fear is a very, very real and human experience, fear of losing our freedom. Next is fear of the unknown. You know, we look at uh, moving to a new place, taking a new job, being involved with a particular person, and the unknown scares us to death. People are frightened by the unknown. In fact, I have a friend who's a psychologist, and uh, we were talking about this concept of, um, of the unknown, and he basically said, everybody fears the unknown. It's just a, de- a matter of degree, of how much you fear and are uncomfortable from the unknown. It's probably a little bit of a loss of control. If I know what I'm facing, at least maybe I can control it. Fear of physical pain. I don't really need to say much about this. Um, I'm the world's worst chicken when it comes to fear. I put a needle up there because it just doesn't take much to scare me. You know what I mean? If, if I get hurt in the midst of a soccer game or in the midst of doing CrossFit or playing football with somebody, I'm fine. No problem. But having to sit there and face the pinprick, you know the pinprick where they take your blood? Scared to death. Like, I don't let it show when I'm at the doctor's office, but it's probably the most frightening thing ever for me. Scared to death, physical pain. Fear of disappointing others. Thought that Zach Galifianakis could help us out there. But for all the people pleasers out there, and there are probably half this room are people who um, are people pleasers, but you know exactly what I'm talking about. You hate the look of displeasure or disappointment on the face of anyone, a stranger, a child, Uh, but especially people that you value and respect and love, fear of disappointing others. Fear of misery, right? Some people are scared to death of being unhappy. That little guy right there, he's terrified. He's so unhappy. I thought that was kind of funny. Anyway, 
We're fear, fearful of misery, fearful of sadness, fearful of unhappiness. Next one, fear of loneliness, right? Um, this, is, this is huge, ultimately. Um, the Bible did say it's not good for man to be alone. God created us to live in community. We're, we're created after God, ultimately, who lives in community within the Godhead. That's deep, big, philosophical stuff. But fear of loneliness um, is something that so many of us are scared to death of. Fear of ridicule, right? Um, so many of us live our lives in such a way so that we try to hide our failures or minimize the things that we would be ridiculed for. And some of you, some of the most painful things you've ever experienced in your lives or life have been when you've been ridiculed, whether it was in you know, junior high or maybe college or maybe, maybe even as an adult, we're scared to death of ridicule. Uh, we're scared of rejection, right? And so rejection is a very real thing that we face. That is a picture of Trump saying, you're fired, by the way. And, uh, and you know, it, it may be that this rejection has been something as um, commonplace as having a little girlfriend or a little boyfriend break up with you when you're in seventh grade at the roller skating rink or something, right? Could be that, that level of rejection. Um, it could be that the rejection you experienced was a rejection or at least a perceived rejection when your parents got divorced, right, at some point in high school or in college. And that might have felt, and maybe whether it, it was intended or not, maybe it really was a rejection of how much they valued you. Maybe some of you have experienced the pain of rejection by the very people that had promised to be with you in sickness and in health till death do you part. You understand the fear of rejection because it's the most painful thing you've ever experienced. Of course you'd be afraid. Fear of death, right? It kind of goes without saying, um, but death is a frightening thing. Woody Allen has a great saying among many of his great sayings where he says, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> right? I'm not afraid of that. I just want to be there when it happens. When my uh, grandmother passed away this past fall, I was driving to Greenville, South Carolina to be with her in her last days. And it's funny, as I was driving in the car, by the way, I'm a pastor. By the way, I believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the dead and that we too will rise again from the dead one day. Like I believe this stuff is true. But as I was driving in the car and I was thinking about my grandmother passing away and thinking about, oh, one day that's going to be me, and it's, you know, could be no time. It could be 20 years, could be 30 years, could be 40 years, but at some point in time, I'm going to be the one laying on that hospital bed. And all of a sudden, as I was driving the car, I was like, wow, that is it's a little bit frightening, right? It's a little scary, fear of death. And then finally, their list had fear of failure, right? Again, fear of failure is not only this idea of fearing failure as, um, as you sort of, in, in your own eyes, right? So maybe you can be a failure in your own eyes. And so you think, I'm not good enough. I don't measure up, right? I think that probably all of us, in many respects, in many ways, feel that fear. So it's fear of failure personally in our own eyes, but it's also fear of failing other people as well. All these things are terrifying. And again, I'm just gonna argue that I think our default position as human beings is that we're terrified, we're scared to death, and we order our lives in such a way as to protect ourselves from having to deal with those things that we're frightened of, the rejection, the loneliness, the ridicule, et cetera, et cetera. You know, over the course of the last several months, we've been using this little paradigm from the Heidelberg Catechism. This catechism was written, um, you know, 500 years ago. But basically, what we're taught to do in the Heidelberg Catechism is ask these particular questions of Scripture. And one of the questions that the Heidelberg Catechism asks and that we ask as we read a passage of Scripture is, what is our sin and misery, right? What is our sin and misery? Or another way of saying it is, how does this passage uh, deal with my brokenness, my sin, my flaws, right? How, how does this passage speak to my brokenness? And it's usually either explicit or it's implicit, right? 
But, but that's what Scripture does, is it really actually does help us diagnose our brokenness. It speaks to us in our brokenness. And in this case, the brokenness that we see addressed implicitly is our fear, in particular how our fear keeps us from following Jesus, right? Our fear keeps us from following Jesus. That's our sin and misery. So let's look at verses 38 and 39. They say this, Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. That's actually a really big deal, and we'll get to it in a minute. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body of way. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Why did Nicodemus visit Jesus at night? Because he was also afraid of what his uh, fellow Sanhedrin members would have thought. Now, part of what we're seeing in this passage is we see that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus are actually moving out of their fear. And so that's a good news. We see them moving out of their fear, stepping out of the darkness into the light to proclaim very publicly that we are disciples of, we are followers of Jesus. But what we also see very clearly is that they've been secretly disciples of Jesus, but secretly because they've been afraid, right? They've been living in fear, right? And with good reason. Here, and let me tell you why they've been living in fear with good reason. One, these guys are powerful. Two, they're probably wealthy. Three, they're very influential. Four, they live in ultimate comfort. Five, the list goes on and on. They've got all of these things going for them. And if they step up publicly and follow Jesus, they realize that there's a very real threat of losing all of those things, losing their power, losing their influence, losing their wealth, losing their comfort, losing their friends. It says they were afraid of the fellow members of the Jewish Sanhedrin. And again, with good reason, these are the people that just lynched Jesus, right? These are the people that just took an innocent man and said, hey, this guy is threatening our power. He's threatening our position. He's threatening our comfort. We're going to have to get rid of him, right? And so Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were fearful for good reason because they had a lot to lose, right? They hid their curiosity and their faith in Jesus. Again, if you think back to that original list we read through of the fears, but just look at the things they probably were afraid of. Were they afraid of death? Probably. I mean, they, the, the Sanhedrin just killed Jesus. Were they afraid of uh, being rejected? Yeah, almost definitely, because they would have been rejected by those, by those men. Were they afraid of ridicule? Yes. Earlier in the book of John, we see that Nicodemus sort of, sort of halfway steps up and defends Jesus a little bit, and he's immediately ridiculed and shouted down, and so surely he was afraid of ridicule. Fear of losing their freedom? Check. They had Jesus arrested. Fear of physical pain? Check. Fear of disappointing others? Check. Fear of loneliness? Check. All of these things were very legitimate fears by Joseph of Arimathea and by Nicodemus, right? Many of us live in fear as well. We talked about this already. You know, fear of disappointing others, fear of loneliness, fear of not being seen, fear of being found out and being seen for who we really are. And like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, most of us, I would almost argue all of us, are fearful of truly coming out and following Jesus. Let me say that one more time. I think all of us in this room are fearful at times of truly coming all the way out and following Jesus. Now, that may be true for some of you in this room who haven't very publicly uh, decided to follow Jesus. Maybe you're investigating Jesus. Maybe you find him curious and think, you know, he's an interesting person. Research has been done across the globe and across all of the nations and all of the countries in the world. Jesus is always in the top three of people that are revered and respected, right? And so people find Jesus very, very interesting, but you're afraid of coming out and following Jesus because you realize what it might cost you, 
right? There are lots of people with stories of truly following Jesus, and when they do so, their parents sort of ridicule them, right? Or their friends say, you know, you're too much for me now, right? Or people look at them and think, well, they're kind of nuts and kind of crazy for following Jesus. And so some of you very realistically are facing that fear because some of the things you fear, like the things that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus feared, are real legitimate threats, right? Those are real risks to be afraid of. But I would also argue that there are people in this room who have already publicly come out and who are following Jesus. And I would say that it's even our temptation to jump back in the shadows and step back on the light and jump back in the shadows for fear of what truly following Jesus will cost us as well. Does that make sense? Like, just to be real honest with you, I want to be seen as an intellectual, like, that's kind of silly right there, if anybody knows me. Anyway, that's funny. Anyway, I want us to be seen as respectable and wise, and I want to be seen as, you know, sharp and all these things. And following Jesus doesn't fit with our cultural narrative of what it looks like to be wise and sharp and intellectual. In fact, uh, to some degree, um, the intellectual elite of our country would say, that's ridiculous, right? I'm just thankful I have other professors from Shorter and Barry in this room to back me up, right? Uh, but it's a real risk. You know, truly following Jesus, uh, if I truly come out and follow him, I'm risking being seen as a buffoon, right, or as a simpleton. Some of you guys understand that fear as well. Some of you understand that truly coming out and following Jesus means something like tithing. And all of a sudden, you're like, you know, that 10% can make a car payment for me or can send my kids to college or whatever the case may be. You realize that there are very real fears that we have with truly stepping out of the darkness and pursuing Jesus and following him, whether you're a Christian or whether you're not, right? Those are real fears and real risks. The question in this passage is what can empower us to step out of the darkness into the light? What can move us from our fear into truly following Jesus? And I think the answer is pretty clear in this passage. What moves us out of our fear is seeing Jesus for who he really is, right? That's what moves us out of our fear, seeing Jesus who he really is. In this case, seeing Jesus as he really is, is the Passover lamb of God. But if you were to read the entire book of John, you would see that John is saying that Jesus is God. You would see John saying that Jesus is the lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. You would see John saying that Jesus is the one who is our adopted big brother who came to protect us and to fight for us. And when we see who Jesus really is, all of a sudden, that is worth more to us than whatever it is we're trying to escape, whatever it is we fear. Listen to the words of 31 through 33. Again, now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Now, I just read verses, and you were like, I don't know what that has anything to do with Jesus being the Passover lamb. What you need to understand is that this entire section, starting in John chapter 13, all the way through John chapter 1, there's this resounding theme that Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus is the Passover lamb. This idea of the day of preparation, uh, ultimately, the day of preparation was to get ready for the Sabbath, but it was a special day because this was the day of preparation for the Sabbath that was part of the Passover, right? And so what would happen is during the Passover, over Jerusalem would swell from 300,000 to over a million people coming in to celebrate the Passover. Part of what's being talked about here, part of what's being inferred here by John as he writes this uh, story of Jesus going to the cross, is he's saying, Jesus is the Passover lamb. 
Not only that, but it says they did not break his legs. Again, it was specified in Exodus chapter 12, verse 46, that the Passover lamb shouldn't have its legs broken. So the verse says it must be eaten inside the house, take none of the meat outside the house, do not break any of the bones. And so we see the day of preparation. We see the fact that the legs were unbroken. Earlier in verse 39, we see that hyssop was dipped into wine and lifted up to Jesus' lips to drink. Again, a recommendation, a reminder of the the whole Passover theme here. Now, it's a little bit difficult to understand just how much Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus understood about who Jesus was, but chances are, as scholars of particularly the Old Testament, they would have seen the Passover implications of Jesus' death. Chances are, as secret disciples of Jesus, they would have remembered John the Baptist's declaration that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and they probably, as secret disciples of Jesus, knew that Jesus had predicted his death and resurrection, right? They probably would have had some idea of these things. It probably would have been a bit hazy for them, but what we do know in this moment is that something happened to make Jesus become bigger than all of their doubts and all of their fears. Does that make sense? That's what happens when we decide to follow Jesus, right? Our doubts and fears don't go away, right? Just for those of you in the room, you need to know your doubts and fears aren't going to go away. They don't grow smaller, but what happens is they're overwhelmed and they're swallowed up by the beauty of Jesus, of who he is, right? Just think with me for a minute about what this looks like. So I work with a lot of young men, and one of the things that at least the cultural narrative says in my relationship with these young men is that young men are really, really terrified of losing their freedom. Like that, they're really afraid of losing their freedom. They don't want to commit, right? They don't want to get tied down, right? They're frightened about all these things, and, and so these fears keep them from commitment, especially commitment to a young lady, right? But what happens is when a young man gets down on one knee and asks a girl to marry him is not that his fears are gone, right? He's still scared of getting tied down. He's still terrified of losing his freedom. He's still scared of divorce because he saw his parents go through it. He's still scared to death when he gets down on one knee to propose to this young lady. But what happens is those fears, though they're still there, are swallowed up and overwhelmed in the transcendent beauty of this woman that he wants to be his wife. In other words, she becomes bigger and more beautiful than any of his fears. That's exactly what happens when we look at Jesus. John Lennon, the uh, leader of the, the, uh, the Beatles, said this. He said, there's two basic motivating forces in life, fear and love. And he got it right. There are two huge motivating forces in life, fear and love. And what ultimately overcomes fear is love. Again, it's not just true with a, with, a, with a fiance. It's not just true when we ask our wife to marry us or our fiance to marry us, our girlfriend to marry us. It's true with Jesus. We've got all the doubts. We've got all the fears. But when we see that Jesus willingly laid down his life for us to forgive our sins, to bring us back into a relationship with his good, good father, to conquer death, right? Then he becomes so beautiful. He becomes so much larger than, so much more transcendent than all of those fears that were compelled to step out of the darkness into the light and to choose him above all others, right? All others. That's exactly what, what Joseph did. That's exactly what Nicodemus did. I love the, the end of this section of scripture here where it says they go to Pilate, they ask for Jesus' body. And you can just imagine these two guys are rich guys, right? 
Like they have nice clothes, they've got powerful positions, they've got all, you know, all this uh, influence and all these things, and they ask for Jesus' body. They don't hire someone to embalm Jesus. They don't hire somebody to bury him. They take him in their own hands and they wipe the blood from his brow, right? And they wipe the blood and the sweat from his matted hair, right? And they wipe the blood from his side and they wrap his body in these linens. And oh, by the way, Nicodemus takes 75 pounds of aloe and myrrh, which was exactly the the amount that would have been used for the death of a king, right? And so Nicodemus undoubtedly says, Whatever it is about Jesus, he is now more beautiful to me than all of my fears. He's also more beautiful to me than my wealth. He's also more beautiful to me than my personal comfort because I'm here on my hands and knees as a rich, powerful man wiping the blood from off his hands and his feet and his side. He is worth it, right? He's worth it. And that's ultimately what I'm inviting you today to do. I'm inviting you to look at Jesus. I'm inviting you to move out of the darkness into the light and to say that Jesus is worth it because he conquered death, because he conquered sin, because he said to Telestai that it's paid in full, that it is finished, that all of your sins are wiped away so that now when God looks at you, he sees you as righteous. He sees you as pure. He sees you as perfectly good. He sees you as his daughter. He sees you as his son. He sees you as beautiful. He sees you covered by the blood of his own son, Jesus Christ. This morning, we're celebrating the Lord's Supper. And so on tables around the room, on on the right-hand side of the room, we have tables with bread and wine. On the left-hand side of the room, we have tables with bread and grape juice. But what's being communicated on these tables is ultimately the gospel. It's communicating that Jesus is the eternal Passover lamb, that, that only one sacrifice was required to cover over all of the sins of all of those who would trust in Christ, past, present, and future. And so this celebration of Jesus as the eternal Passover lamb is more than enough. And let me warn you and say really quickly, don't be so arrogant as to say that that sin you committed when you were 17 is bigger than the grace of God or the mercy of God. Don't be so arrogant as to say that that thing that I did when I was 27 is just too big. There's no way God can forgive me for that because what you're ultimately saying is, Sorry, God, the blood of your son, the blood of the eternal Passover lamb isn't enough because what God is saying is it's more than enough, more than enough to forgive all of your sins, past, present, and future. For those of you in this room who think, I've done that thing too many times, there's no way that there's any more mercy that's left for me. I'm too ugly. What you need to hear in this Passover today, this, this Lord's Supper, is you need to hear Jesus declaring, you are beautiful to me. Like, you're beautiful to me. So beautiful, in fact, that I'm covering you with the righteousness of my son, Jesus, the eternal Passover lamb. For those of you who think that somehow God is still angry with you, you need to hear Jesus speaking through this Passover meal, this Lord's Supper meal. You need to hear Jesus saying, all of the wrath of God was poured out upon me for your sake. There's, again, tetelestai. You don't owe anything else. God's no longer angry with you. You're forgiven you're beautiful, you're loved, and there's nothing you can do to change that. Simply trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And look to God, our Heavenly Father, as your good, good Father. Now, the one qualification I will make is this. Is this meal today of bread and wine, bread and grape juice that signifies the gospel, the only people that aren't allowed to come to this meal today are people who haven't yet come to the point of trusting in Christ as their Savior. If you're still trusting in your own good work, 
if you're still trusting in the absence of badness in your life. It's just not for you. This is for people who look at Jesus and you say, Jesus, you are my only hope. You paid it all. You're my eternal Passover lamb. I'm going to read the words of institution, and then I'm going to ask that you sit as long as you want in um, the seats, and I want you to ponder what it means that you're completely forgiven, that you're beautiful before God, that all of God's wrath has been poured out, and there's nothing left for you, that it's been paid in full. And when you're ready, I want to invite you to receive the Lord's Supper. There'll be people standing at various tables around the room, and if one of you would love to have someone pray with you, then uh, one of those people would be more than happy to spend a moment in prayer with you as well, confirming this, uh, this truth of the gospel. Hear the words of institution taken from 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death to one another, to yourself, to a watching world until he comes. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I pray that, um, that our ability to, to even stand before you now um, would, again, not be because of our perceived goodness or because of our badness, but I pray that our ability to stand before you now would be completely in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus. Father, let, let your son, Jesus, be our only hope. And so it is in Jesus' name that we pray all these things today. Amen.